Hello and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. Oh, and me, Chris Kitchener. Sorry, you caught me out there. <laughs> In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around team and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. But to be honest, you know that already, as you've listened to this before. Uh, I'm a former Royal Marines officer. Chris is a product manager from the world of business. And we like to talk about where the overlaps lie, compare and contrast our experiences. And occasionally we have guests, and we're very fortunate tonight that that is one of those episodes. We have a guest with us. Chris, you introduced me to Ian, so would you like to introduce Ian, our guest? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll I'll overcome the fact that I, I, I forgot when it was my point to say, hello, it's Chris. Part of that was just because of the excitement of having Ian as a guest on the podcast tonight. So we are delighted to uh, welcome Ian Pegg to the podcast. Now, I first came across Ian as part of a community that's grown up around another podcast. I think we've said this word before. Is that adultery when you mention other podcasts? But the podcast is uh, called We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, it is an excellent Second World War history podcast. And what's been really interesting about that po podcast beyond the topic and the subject matter, which we've referenced in the past, is how a community has built up around that podcast, bringing a number of people together in surprising and interesting ways. And one of the earliest members of that community was Ian. And so I became familiar with him, not in terms of the topics we're going to talk about today, but as part of that podcast and also then part of the, the festival. So there's a we have ways of making you talk festival as well. I'm sure I should get paid for this advertising. But if you haven't heard of it, please do go take a look. I'll be there and Ian will be there. And it's an interesting thing. Anyway, not only is Ian an avid listener, but he also runs his own live sessions where members of the community come together and share their own ideas and stories. So that's how I first became aware of Ian in, in, in sort of a non-leadership and management or even necessarily historical way. But more recently, though, um, I heard that Ian was doing some really interesting research of his own. And when he said he'd be willing to come on the podcast, we absolutely jumped at the offer. So just before I get in, tell us a bit more about his research. I also wanted to share another interesting thing that when we started organizing this recording, I actually wasn't aware of, of Ian's day job. But when we connected, as it happens, he's also a senior manager within a government organization. And so we've got double crossover tonight. We've got crossover in terms of some of this historical research, but also in terms of his own uh, interest in business management and leadership. So welcome, Ian, to the podcast. Uh, thank you. And thank you, Chris and Gareth, for inviting me along. I'm uh, two of my favourite subjects tonight, which is leadership and talking about World War II and chaplains, and it's uh, I'm delighted to be here. So thank you. No, it's a, it's our absolute pleasure. So you 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 very briefly introduced the the topic really, which is chaplains. And what occurred to me is that this is a incredibly underserved topic, and I'm I don't know enough about this. So. Before you sort of start talking about chaplains and their roles and how we think it's from leadership, how did you get into this area? How did you pick this and how have you gone about it? Um, I, I, well, how did I come? I stumbled on it. I, I read a book which I have outside me called Thank You Padre by Joan Clifford. It, it was a book that I picked up in a charity shop. No idea why um, I picked that particular book up. But then when I started to read about these men who I hadn't heard a lot about. I knew about Royal Army chaplains, 
but I didn't know what their role was in World War II. And then when you start to dig into the subjects and research, you find out that my question in my head when I was reading about it is, why would a man go to war and, and up to 1946, they were all men, without weapons, have complete trust in their faith and religion, and yet put themselves right on the front line in danger um, to serve the men around them, no matter what their rank was, no matter what their religion was, and at times to make the ultimate sacrifice and give their life, or to give their freedom to make sure they served with their men. And I wanted to understand, I'm, I'm not religious, Let, let's be clear about this. I'm interested in the man. What makes a man that type of man? Why are they as brave as they are? And they're not all perfect. Let, let's be honest about this. I, I say a lot about the good, but there are chaplains and there are hundreds of stories about um, drunkenness, inappropriateness, and we'll talk about them falling out with COs down the line. But who are these men? I want to tell their story, not the theoretical story around religion and war, because they come from a, a multitude of backgrounds and they had a multitude of experiences that, that need to be told. And there's not many books out there. There's not much research out there. And this seemed an opportunity of a subject that I've become interested in. And listeners might have heard this week, I've signed a publishing deal um, and I'm really grateful for uh, Chiselbury Publishers and Stuart Leeser for agreeing to publish the book, which should be out in spring next year. And the book will be called Death and Heroes, Royal Army Chaplains in World War II. There's my well, plug for tonight. <laughs> well, no, actually, that is a worthy plug. And actually, I think we've already got an excuse to get you back on to talk, talk in more detail about the book. G going back to the chaplains, though, I think one of the things that I have no idea about is the scale. So, you know, we talk about millions of people in the army. How many chaplains were there? Was it sort of a small group of 100 crack chaplains or was it larger? How, how did that work? It started off uh, in 1939 with a couple of hundred chaplains. I think there were there was about 109, 200 full-time chaplains and then they were supported by some territorial army chaplains. And that was 1939 for an army of a few million. It was quickly realized that they would need more chaplains on the ground and emergency commissions were put into place. Initially, there were 400 immediates in September 39 that were commissioned and then quickly built up to about 3,000 570 odd at the end of the war. These are just Royal Army chaplains. They only, they aren't doing research across the whole field of chaplains. And I've looked at Canadian chaplains and RAF chaplains. My main research is Royal Army chaplains that served. And they served across all battlefields. They served, they were part of the Royal Army chaplains department. They were then posted with regiments. So they served with all regiments in all corners of the war. So you, you you talked about how they were commissioned, and as people will, will probably remember, I've spent a brief period in the military. The fact that they were commissioned implies they were officers, and therefore you could easily imagine, so these are, are these chaplains for officers? Can you, can you talk about how that worked? Because one imagines 
well, one imagines they weren't just chaplains for officers. So even though their officers had that work in. Uh, I, I think the first thing to understand is up to 1920, they had a rank that was clearly a, 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 an army rank. And in 1920, that was changed over to class because we wanted to take them out of being assumed that they were there just for officers. So in 1920, instead of it being a colonel, you became a chaplain first class, and that it tends to be one of those. Second class chaplain is a lieutenant colonel, a third class chaplain is a major, and a fourth class chaplain is a captain. Now, what we have to be clear on is though they are officers, and they are billeted in officers' messes, they are there for all ranks. And, and one of the big things that a lot of the chaplains immediately had to get over was this being seen as an officer. They had to uh, ingratiate themselves with the uh, soldiers in the field, the privates, the sergeants, the corporals, and they had to be shown that they were there for whoever you were, no matter of your rank, no matter of your religion. And though they would serve 80% of the people in their own religion, they were there, whatever religion you were, if you wanted to talk to a chaplain, they were there for you. So they would do things like organise sports days and theatre and entertainment so that they got themselves in with the ranks and the ranks could see that they were there to, to be a friend. It wasn't just about religion. I think the, the issue at the start of the war for chaplains was that there was very little leadership. And I, I would come on to leadership. They had very little leadership and training. They, they were emergency commissions who were given at the start of the war, two weeks training, a bit of basic, and then sent out to regiments Colonels and commanding officers didn't know what to do with them, and they weren't clear on what their role should be in regiments. They were making it up as they went along. But I think in some ways, it gave them the freedom to be leaders, even though they didn't have men under them. That's a really important aspect of my personal experience of working alongside padres and chaplains is, is exactly that. It's being outside of the formal chain of command and yet still in a leadership position. I just want to touch on the the rank discussion a little bit more. In in certainly in contemporary circumstances, the army chaplains I've worked alongside and worked with, it's fairly typical for them to walk around with their rank and then deliberately take it off as a as an act of showing and demonstrating to their audience that it doesn't matter and that this is a rank-free discussion and a rank-free environment. The Navy chaplains are slightly different in that they don't wear a rank um, and there's a, a rule, a, not really a rule, a convention in the Navy that the Navy chaplain assumes the rank of the person that they're talking to. Yeah. And so they, they wear a particular symbol that shows they're a, a chaplain but it doesn't indicate at all what class or rank they, they are they still do sort of eat and drink in the wardroom and and have some of the privileges that that an officer would have but it's a slightly different approach uh, that the army have it, it's fascinating it genuinely is fascinating that you've picked up on chaplains as a 
really important aspect of leadership, not just in combat situations, but, but in military organizations as a whole. For me, having served, you know, however many years I did, they, I, I think you, you've alluded to this, that they're really undervalued and they're particularly undervalued by the formal chain of command, by the officer corps. And in all of the exercises, war games, planning that I've ever done, chaplains are almost never talked about, never thought about, never considered. And yet in every operation I've ever been on, they have been pivotal to the, the moral cohesion of the force. Uh, and you've already alluded to the fact that they do that and religion. And I'm going to say the word agnostic. I don't mean in a religious sense, but I mean in terms of their ability to discuss with people conversations around faith, around emotional support, social care, pastoral care, without being fire and brimstone and you know trying to convert people. You, you, you at the very beginning mentioned that not all the stories are good. I, I know a particular Navy chaplain who, who was exactly that, was a fire and brimstone sort of sermons from, from the pulpit and shouting and, 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 and actually absolutely failed to be a chaplain um, and actually had a negative effect on the pastoral care of, of the deployed force. But on the whole, I think my, my experience of working alongside chaplains has been very, very good. I don't know anything about chaplains from, from history, though, and I'm fascinated by this. Well, and just before we get on to that, because I think I'm sort of itching for us to talk about the leadership aspects, but maybe we'll, we'll do that a little bit later. But it's, the first thing that strikes me is on this podcast, we frequently talked about leadership when there is a clear rank. I am a leader because there is a structure that says I'm in a position of authority and leadership. And the first thing you've said, Ian, is that's the first thing that's in effect taken away from them, which says there is no clear rank or structure. Now, please go ahead and be influential or provide influence and leadership. Anyway, we'll, we'll get on to that. But at the risk of dipping into what might be in the book, and I really do want to have you come back when, when, when the book's published, Perhaps you could give us a couple of examples of maybe maybe you're sort of the ones that that struck you as the most interesting, whether it's fun or tell us about some of these chaplains you've done research on. The thing what I would say about chaplains and leadership in war is that they were suddenly thrust into leadership positions in battle that was unexpected. And then they just got on with it. And the, these are the good chaplains I'm talking about, the stories that I've found. So, so, for example, we talked about commanding officers not knowing what to do with them. But on the uh, as we come to the end of the one, I'm going to start backwards and work, we'll start at the end and come back to it. Um, there was a, a Lieutenant Colonel Mogg of the 9th Durham Light Infantry who was promoted to CO with no battle experiences. His CO was killed on the 7th of June, 44, day after D-Day. And he was out of his depth. And it was a chaplain called uh, Reverend Jack Devine, who he turned to for advice and became his confidant. Uh, Jack Devine had got experience on the battlefront. 
he'd got experience of serving with uh, the 9th Durham Light Infantry. And, and he became a trusted advisor in terms of what to do, conduct, listening to the concerns of Mog, helping him come to decisions that were required in battle. And it, it just shows the trust in which chaplains, um, some chaplains were given that somebody at that level, lieutenant, a lieutenant colonel, recognised that the chaplain being a calm, even person was the person to turn to for advice in that situation. And, and it, that's certainly recognised in transcripts that I've seen from Lieutenant Colonel Mogg, that the help the chaplain gave helped him build his experience as a leader. And, uh, and was, was that advice in terms of tactical advice or was that more providing a, a sort of judgment-free sounding board and allowing... I, I think allowing it was both, yeah. As far as I can yeah. work out, Gareth, it was both. It was, it was a sounding board of, is this sensible? Yeah. Am I making the right decisions here? Am I thinking in the right way? But I also think there were times from what I can read that there were tactical decisions that he was unsure of and he used Jack Devine as a, a sounding board for those as well. Chaplin with none of that battle leadership training but just used common sense. Yeah, and I, I, was, I was about to say, I suppose when you consider the context of the Second World War, most of the leaders were, were thrust into it with very little experience, very little training. And so actually having... Having somebody who is just a sensible head, possibly not under the same pressure, the, the same stress, or not in the same way, is, is probably quite a, a useful person to have around. In, yeah. in, a, in a modern context, I know, I know from personal experience, but more from watching others, I think in my operational experience, I was probably too junior to, to ever have the, the close relationship in that sense with, with a padre but I've certainly seen it where you wouldn't expect a padre to be there to provide tactical advice I was there are lots say, of other people it, it but, feels like the cards are stacked against them in terms yeah. of a lack a lack of training a lack yeah. of recognized authority and so therefore to step up and have influence and have the ability to build trust Maybe we'll come back to the later, which is it sound, I, I'm pretty willing to bet that as you've looked at these, you've started to note common traits that have allowed them to yeah. do. What I would say, though, is although the, yeah, it, it, it's very unlikely in a contemporary sense that a, a commander would rely on a padre for tactical advice, I have certainly seen discussions around the moral imperatives the difficult decisions, especially around targeting. And so just to, just to be very clear, targeting doesn't necessarily mean dropping bombs and killing people. It just means thinking about effects you want to have on a target, which could be a person, a building, a thing, uh, an idea. Um, but we go through a process to make sure that it's legal, to make sure that we have the capability to deliver that effect that the assumptions about the weapon or whatever it is that's going to deliver that effect is, is 
logical, we have the intelligence and all the information we need to do it, and that it's morally justified. And that's beyond the, is it legal? Because you have the laws of armed conflict and, and the conventions and the rules of engagement, but is it morally justified? And that's where I've seen commanders really rely on their padres who are effectively, again, I'm gonna say the word tactically agnostic. They're, they're not involved in making those talk about and discussions around tactics, around actions to effect, but they are there to have a very honest and frank conversation about the moral and ethical imperative. And commanders really, really value that. And we've talked in the past about the immense stress that being a commander in, in combat you know, induces, both in terms of fatigue, but also in terms of the pressure for the decisions you have to make. And I've said before that the higher the rank you are, typically the less decisions you have to make. But the decisions you do make become more and more difficult and the and the consequences of them become greater and greater and i think for me that's where i've been uh, beyond the the rest of the social cohesion and the pastoral care of the unit morale which i'm sure we'll talk about that's where i've seen them provide a a combat value added to the command staff it, it's a really interesting point because it's it's that that morality comes through a lot in terms of what chaplains did. And one of the questions that I keep asking myself is how does a chaplain justify all the killing? Mm. I know we're getting away from leadership a little bit, but it's about how do they justify justify the means to the end? And, and that depended on the chaplain, the type of religion, and there's lots of different answers in there. But, but basically it was about defeating evil. Um, yeah. That's a separate subject completely. Well, it, I mean, it is, but as we talk, it becomes increasingly clear. You could have a person that didn't have a title chaplain and all of these things, are, are maybe I may even overplacing the, the sort of sense, but you could describe them simply as leaders. And, and so actually, I think all of these things, the how could you be involved in a war where there is killing? Well, you've just said, how as a leader can you participate in things where things could go wrong or you might have to do things you don't personally want to do? Well, now we're talking about accountability, ownership, responsibility, a sense of mission. All of these things are clearly, if as a chaplain, they have their context. But if you took the chaplain away, they you, you've just described some of the pure requirements or, or things that you would look for in a leader. Well, look, Ian, why, why don't you tell us about a couple more of these? I, I think the big thing I would say, and as I'll keep coming back to this, to me, chaplains are leaders. They yeah. may not have men under them, but they are leaders and they lead their service. They lead the men in morale and things like that. And that's really important. I, and I think... We've talked about their supporting commanding officers, but I think what we also have to think about is there are a number of instances where chaplains ended up leading men in the field in battle, where, for example, um, Father Joe Gill in 
I think it was Crete, got separated in the mountains with a group of soldiers. And they were, they were properly lost. And he had to take leadership and guide them back to the safe harbour. There was no, they had no officers with them. And the men turned to him as the chaplain to lead them to safety. Now, why did they turn to him as the chaplain? Because he was somebody that could be trusted, somebody that was calm, that they saw as an officer and as a leader. And they gave him, and he undertook that responsibility to get them back to safety. And I, 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 there are uh, lots of stories about soldiers getting separated with chaplains and chaplains leading them back out of perilous situations. Um, and and I, I, I think though they were not really trained in leadership in its purest sense, leadership has a lot of skills around away from the hard skills of the techniques that chaplains used before they were even in the army. Good communication skills, uh, good decision-making skills, the soft skills that come out. We'll talk about that in a little while. Mm. And, and I think they took those skills into their army careers and used them real, or a lot of them used them really, really well. But then you get those that led with bravery. So you, you get um, Reverend Ronald Edwards at the Battle of Casino in May 44, who was serving with the um, Second Four Hampshires. And they were crossing the uh, Gary River uh, to undertake an attack and they came under bombardment. 30 or 40 men were wounded on the wrong side of the river. And the chaplain volunteered and led a party across the river and he led by doing the do. So he swam the river with a cable, a rope. He swam, uh, got to the other side, pulled the boat across. He organized getting the 30 or 40 wounded into the boat. He was then the last man off that bank as the leader, making sure that everybody had got off the wrong side of the river. And then he swam back himself. And, and that's about leading by example. That's yeah. not just about bravery, but that's about leading by example. I can see what the problem is. As a leader, I know what I need to do, but I need to show these men that I'm not expecting them to do something I wouldn't do. So mm -hmm. he led from the front. He, he, he started that action, and then men followed him. And I think that's really important that there are, throughout this, there, uh, the World War II, there are instances where true leadership was shown through bravery and courage and being the bravest of the brave at times. One of the things I think I get nervous about on this podcast is we, we treat all this very theoretically and even academically, you know, and we'll come back and we'll summarise some of this about things, but I'm always interested about how people on the ground treat leadership because I'm, mm. you know, my own experience is I don't walk around with a pamphlet or a book every day. I have to go do... Did the chaplains, did they have a sense of leadership? Did they talk about leadership? Did they talk about how they did it? Or why? What did they recognise that they were being leaders in this way? I don't think they regarded themselves as, le as leaders in its purest form. But times when they recognised that someone had to be, had to show the example and be that first person 
as we know with leadership, people look to a leader to make decisions, to be decisive. All people want really is some direction and some organisation. They want somebody to stand up saying, right, we are going to do this. This is how it's going to happen. And I think a number of these chaplains, viewing the situation in front of them, took up that role. Now, whether they thought because they were classed as officers that they needed to do that, I don't, it's not clear. But I think they did it because of the type of men they were, because they were a chaplain. Mm -hmm. Part of their role was to serve with the soldiers right on the front line, to save as many as they could, to give dignity in death where dignity was required. And the only way they could do that was to be that leader who made decisions, who said, right, we are going to go to this position to do this. And then I can undertake my duties as a chaplain to either recover these wounded or give last rites or whatever. I know now that in the contemporary military, it is very much talked about. And I think we've we've moved on considerably in the the maturity with which we discuss leadership, different types of leadership, different styles. And we've moved on considerably from perhaps how it was viewed in a in a perhaps slightly more simplistic way in in the second world war and it's definitely you know, central to the role of being a chaplain and there's a lot of discussion about moral leadership about not undermining chains of command but enabling a chain of command by being a a separate and different type of leader but i suspect that developed largely probably on the you know on the foundations that these these brave men from the second world war created for us what i found really interesting about chaplains serving with us in three commando brigade was they didn't have to but to a man or woman they did the commando course with the marines and Although they're not combatant, they would carry all the weight, they carry the helmet, the fighting pack, they go and do all the commando tests. And it always made me laugh because you could tell the chaplain because they were probably two decades older than all the all the Marines who were 18 to sort of 25. And you'd have this 45-year-old bright red chaplain huffing and puffing alongside, but would do it. Um, and rather than carrying a rifle, they carried a metal staff that weighed the same as a rifle. And that was symbolic because it meant they were doing the same thing. And that that was my first introduction to chaplains, actually. And that was really important because when they then stand in front of you know, the unit dealing with really quite tragic you know, incidents that have happened, people being repatriated because they've been killed or very badly injured, you weren't just looking at somebody who has authority because of their religious ordination but they have authority because they they've earned you know the green beret they've been through the same the, the same shit you have and they were always going out on patrol didn't have to but they would go out on patrol they would take the same physical risk in fact more so because they're not armed yeah and, and that very much came out in the second world war as well well so the airborne chaplains in the second world war would go through as, 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 so at the start of the war, there was very little training for chaplains, but that developed quite quickly. But the airborne chaplains, especially um, as the war developed, 
went through jump school, went through a, exactly the same training as all the other carers, and they jumped out of the aircraft uh, in Tarnham and places like that. They certainly in Burma with the Chindits, the chaplains who served with the Chindits, went through exactly the same training, and it was important to the chaplains. They weren't told to do this. This was chaplains saying, if I'm going to be seen by the soldiers as somebody they can come to, they have to see that I'm doing what they do. That gave them the respect that they needed. And same with the airborne chaplains. They went through exactly the same thing. That really comes through uh, the likes of, of Arnhem, where they parachuted in, where a number of them died, a number of them were injured, a number of them were captured. But they were on the ground leading the men. And, and certainly Reverend Talbot uh, Watkins parachuted into Arnhem with one para. And after four days of heavy casualties, there were only 200 paras left and three officers and he was one of those three officers and he ended up being in a clear leadership position because he had to take over uh, the regimental aid post and the advanced dressing stations because the doctors had been killed so not only was he leading those he was doing medical stuff so he was that he was clearly an officer leading troops on the ground at a battle and in Arnhem. I'm beginning well, to think that we've, as people are interested in leadership, we've missed a trick here, which is that if we'd have started looking at chaplains earlier, we might have found out more. Well, look, let's let's take a quick break. I actually, I'm keen to hear a few more stories about this. And actually, there's a bit of populism here. I'd like to hear a few of the bad ones because I'm sure there are some interesting stories that prove that leadership is not is is fallible. Um, so let's let's come back in a couple of seconds and let's carry on the story. So uh, see you in a second. Welcome back. Well, we we left with stories of chaplains parachuting in Arnhem and discussions about how in the Royal Marines, chaplains do the Green Beret course, carrying a metal staff the same weight as a gun, which I had never heard a, before. A rifle, Chris. A rifle. A rifle. Oh, oh, I think I nearly got in trouble. Ian, I'd love to hear a couple more stories and perhaps let's let's have one where Maybe they weren't people to hold up as much as we have with some of the other examples you've given. Some of these stories will be in my book. There are others that are writing books that will include some chaplains. So I'm being careful how I put some of this in the detail in there. But I think one of those who got it wrong as a chaplain was a, a, a chaplain called Derek Williams, who was... He actually uh, was called the Blitz Padre. So before he signed up for being a chaplain in the military... He served in London and was given dispensation during the Blitz to be on the streets at night. And uh, when places were bombed, he was normally right there on the front line pulling people out of the ground. And he got a really good reputation, Derek Williams. And then he, he decided he wanted to serve in the military and he, he decided he was going to be Royal Navy first, but then for some reason transferred to the Royal Army Chaplains and was placed with Lovett's Commandos having had no battlefield experience and was had not ingrained himself in with the troops just before d-day gave a sermon to uh, to the commandos 
and that sermon went down like a brick through a window. He pitched it completely wrong. He he talked about the wrong things in the sermon. It should have been a sermon about gene people. He completely, it was quite clear he wasn't leader. He didn't understand what was required to, about what those men needed in a time and a place. And Lubbock was so furious with him that he he dismissed him there and then. Whether dismissed means he sacked him or whether dismissed means he just dismissed him from the commandos. But um, it, it's such a sad story that Williams was so upset that by that that he went away and committed suicide. And wow. that, that's somebody who just got it wrong, just didn't understand being a leader. But in, as a leader, as we know, words are very powerful. So it's interesting as you, as you, as you, as you talk about sort of the words really matter, you know, we, we mentioned at the, uh, at the beginning of the podcast that you, you're a senior manager. And so therefore the, the crossover of leadership actually isn't accidental. The fact that we came and said, will you come and talk was, was more obvious than we thought. You've spent a lot of time thinking about chaplains and their role. What have you taken away from this? And, you know, what are the, what are the things you think about as you try to be a better leader? How has that influenced you? The thing I take away uh, from, from chaplains a lot of the time is, one is about good communication. Any leader needs good communication. And, and what you find with the really good chaplains is that their communication was excellent. They, they could communicate with everybody from the privates on the ground to their commanding officers, and they could pitch their communication as was required so that everybody felt welcome, everybody felt they were being listened to, that the messages they were giving out were the right messages. And we've got to remember, this isn't just about on the battlefield. This could be in prisoners of war camps, um, not just in, in Europe, but in the Far East where things were very difficult. They would hold services. They would keep people's morale up. And that is all about listening and good communication skills. And I think I, t I take that away as a really big thing. What, what do you think makes for that good communication? So... Of course, we agree good communication is important, but how, how do you actually turn that into reality? What, what's the difference between a good communication and or a good method of communication and a poor one? It's reading the room. It's understanding mm. and listening very carefully. So I think good communicators are good listeners because they pick up on the nuances of what's being said to them and understand, and they have emotional intelligence. They feel what the words are and then how to uh, then shape their response to what what is the situation and it's about taking each individual situation poor leaders are people who don't have self-awareness they they are going to give a message and it's going to be this message and i haven't heard what any of you are saying i'm just going to say this and it's not about that there may be a message that they have to say but it's about pitching that message right and it's about understanding the consequences of those very powerful words it's, it's, chaplains do that very well the the emotional intelligence piece is really interesting to me because i'm always struck by the fact that the cliche of a leader is a strong stand at the front 
point where we're going and say, come on, everyone, follow me. It's, it's a very, it's, it, aggressive is the wrong word, but it's a very positive, strong at all assertive. times. Assertive. Assertive, that's the, that, yeah. exactly, it's assertive. Whereas I think some of the greatest tricks of leadership, some of them are assertive, but many of them aren't assertive. And I think emotional intelligence is one of these where there are people that would say, well, that sounds like wishy-washy nonsense listening to people. But I, I think what, you, what you're talking about here is so, so, so important. And it touches on this. Mm. It really does link to your communication, which is listen, communicate, build trust. And the only way to do that, to hear about the problems, to hear about the nuances and to even be open to those nuances is that emotional intelligence. I've seen Padres you know, do this. And I think you're right, Chris. There's this kind of cliched view on what good leadership is. And, and we've in the past talked about the fact that you can't really explore leadership unless you explore organisational culture, which means understanding the assumptions and the values of the organization and the people within it. And one of the things that somebody with really good emotional intelligence can do is communicate with different people in different situations on their level without, without being fault. So they're not you know, putting on an accent. It's not, you know, I'm gonna put on my posh accent when I talk to the officers and I'm gonna put on my you know, rough East End accent when I talk to the lads. It's, it's being yourself, but it's about holding yourself and being able to communicate with people at their level. And I think for me, the, the best example of this was on one of the operations I was on, I saw the Padre talk to a, a quite senior commanding officer in a way that was very respectful, but almost as a peer, senior officer to senior officer, but explaining some of the say problems, some of the tensions within the unit and explaining it from the perspective of, of the Marines. The same chaplain I saw on a very, very cold night, huddled under a, a poncho, smoking a cigarette with a, a young Marine who just needed a chat. And it wasn't a falsehood, it was just a different way of carrying yourself. But the same Padre again, at a different time, realized they did need to be assertive and they did need to buck everybody up because everybody was starting to sort of sink into a, a pit of despair and saw when the right behavior, the right communication style was required. And I think that's the emotional intelligence that I've seen from the vast majority of Padres and I think I've seen it interestingly, and I'd never thought about it until today. I've seen it in I've seen it in good officers, I've seen it in good senior NCOs, I've seen it in good leaders in, in the in the business world, but proportionally I've seen it far more in padres. It's not a I mean my my view is it, it's not it's hard it's a hard skill to learn. It's either sometimes it's within you. You, you can't explain how you know or why you know or how you do it. And I get asked this quite a lot. And some of it comes from the experiences that I've had watching good, what I regard as good leaders in my career 
who I've looked up to and looked how they've done things. Some of it, I think, is how you are as a person. And, and that's not a criticism of anybody. That is just something that is within you. But two things I'd like to add to that, Gareth, is self-awareness is really important as a leader. Self-awareness is massive because you can't be afraid to receive feedback. You've got to want to receive feedback and challenge because the only way you can become a better leader is by people. I, I With my work, I encourage my teams, if they think I'm doing something wrong or making a wrong decision, I want them to challenge me so that it helps my understanding and it helps me see what's in front of me. And I think another big thing is, and you've touched on this, Gareth, is courage. It's courage yeah. to not avoid the problem. And it doesn't matter at what level that is at. If you're if in, in the army, if it's to a senior commander, to me, if it's to, to my senior managers, it's the courage to say, actually, we have a problem here. But it's not saying we've got a problem, you've got to sort it out. It's saying, actually, we've got a problem. You need to be aware of this. You need to be aware that this is the impact this is having on people. And you need to be aware that actually it might be that we need to do these things that will help address the issue. Yeah. And it's, there are lots of nuances around that. Sort of leading on from Chris's question about are we missing a trick? Do you think there's a gap in the, in the civilian world where because military have to face death, have to face moral hazard. It, it's self-evident that you need this kind of almost external leadership role to to provide that pastoral care. Yeah, we're, we're seeing a, a massive rise in mental health issues and harm as a result of stress, as a result of dynamic operating environment. Do you think there's a role for not necessarily chaplains, but somebody? who can fulfill the role that a chaplain plays in a military unit in commercial organisations? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm going to say yes. But I, I, but I think the problem is that people become cynical as to what that person is or who that role is. And I think it very much relates to, back to what I said about chaplains, chaplains trying to ingrain themselves in with the soldiers at all ranks in, in a business organization whoever that person would be would need to be someone who would be seen as anybody could go to and, and organizations yeah. have i think there used to be uh, when i first started in the civil service 30 years ago hr had very much a leading role in this sort of thing so hr were what i would call a proper human resources network in that if you had any problems at work and you felt you couldn't talk to your manager you would go to hr knowing that your contact in hr the person responsible for you would treat it with confidentiality they would look to help you and i think a lot of organizations i think because hr has gone in a particular direction in a lot of organizations those type of HR professionals are now missing. Yeah. I think some of what they're trying to replace that with is staff assistance schemes, for want of a better word, which 
tend to be external organizations yeah, that's outsourced yeah in those sorts of things but they i i know from having talked to my staff they're just seen as oh they're paid to do that job they're not doing it because they care or it's what they want to do they are paid to do it and that that is a massive thing um in terms of what it is i think the training in what i know as mental health first aiders and and in some ways people are cynical about that but i think that's going somewhere to address that issue but i yeah. think i think we need to the problem is they're badged as mental health first aiders and, and those two words scare people even though yeah. we talk about it on a daily basis those mental health words and i think we need to find a way of having something like a chaplain getting around to the point. well and and i think there's i wanted to pick up on a couple of points which sort of lead on from this which is we we talked about one of the reasons why chaplains are good leaders is because they care they genuinely care now i think I've met many leaders, in fact, probably one of the best leaders I've ever worked with. He treated me like he was one of his kids. Now, what I don't mean is he patronized me and told me to go to Berl early. He literally, you could see it in his eyes, he wanted the best for me, whatever that meant. And that immediately gave him an advantage where I wanted, th this was a person who cared about me. And so that, that really mattered. I think there's a question to come back to later is, I think there's there's people over in their makeup that they care. As a yeah, leader, yeah. if you don't care, what do you do? But the second thing I wanted to go back because I think this this question about could you bring people into business that act in this role of chaplain? I think the bit we've missed so far is nobody assumed chaplains were there as a mental health help. Chaplains had been around that the you know priests and the priesthood and, and chaplains were a fixed part of the furniture for people's life. And so when one was there, nobody said, Well, why are they here? It was like, oh, it's, it's a chaplain. Yeah. And so so there was they were almost free to then do these other things without people going, Why are you here? So the challenge we've got with bringing people into businesses today is exactly as you say, Ian, there's an element of cynicism. Oh, why are they here? What rank? What are they trying to find out? I think you're right. HR used to have, again, that similar role, which was, well, HR is always here, so I don't have to worry about an ulterior motive. But I, I agree with you. I think both of you, we misunderstand the importance of this pastoral care. It is not a hippie, tree-huggy kind of thing. It is a lieutenant colonel leading men into battle says for me to be a more effective leader, this person gives me things that other people can't give me. And if, you know, in the in the classic words, if, you know, if, if being wearing a tutu makes me a better leader, show me where I can buy a tutu kind of a thing. I think it's interesting how you how do we how do we bring that more into leadership? For, for me, where this started was um, when I first started the civil service 30 years ago, my, my first leader was somebody called Wing Commander Colin King, who had just come out of the RAF. And immediately I started as the junior, junior of junior members of staff. I was bottom of the pile when I started. Um, and he was the senior leader who looked after all these teams. 
but he went out of his way to find out about me on my first day. He, he, he wasn't aloof. He came and he come and introduced himself. He come and said, hello. He wanted to know about me. Now, immediately, I'm like, I like this guy. It could have been a woman, but I like this guy. He wants to know about me. He cares who I am, not that I'm just here to do a job. But on top of that, he would come round every morning to all of his teams. He would take half an hour out of his very busy diary in the morning. And then he would come round each office and sit in each office and say, how's everybody? How's, how's, how's things going? What's happening? How's your wife? How's your kids? What did you do last night? And it's those little things. It's not the big thing about being a leader. It's those little things. And I take a lot of, a lot of that. It's important to me that whenever I get new members of staff in my teams, I go out of the way to find out about them. And I go out, it's not just about them at work because their home life impacts on their work. So it's finding about there. And they tell me, I don't force them. They tell me as much or as little as they want to tell me. But it's that, it's that starts with caring at that level. And then what I personally, what I would do then is you recognize and you ask the question of why are you here? Are you here to just earn your money and go home and you want to give the best you can? Or are you a high flyer? You want somebody who wants to go on and, and do something else. And then I know how to pitch how I work with them as a leader. What is it? What challenge do they need? How do I help them? achieve what they need out of every week or every year and I, I took that there's a lot of that came from that early experience of having a good leader well I think Ian, that's a, a really lovely story and I think it encapsulates sort of what we've been talking about we're going to have to bring this discussion to a close and I, I think all three of us could could keep going all night one of the things I find really interesting we've just spent an hour talking about chaplains and the role of chaplains in leadership and we've not at all really talked about faith religion denomination and i think that gets to the heart of this you know the the reason they're there in the first place and you know we've talked about whether they could be involved in commercial organizations i think chris is right they were fulfilling the role of the local priest or vicar or whoever from from the village out in the field and actually what's happened is the rest of society has perhaps moved away from reliance on that pastoral care of your local parish vicar or local religious leader and the army and the rest of the military has kept hold of that because because of the value that it brings i think you know i've, I've served with mostly church of england and, and catholic padre but i've I've worked with Jewish, Islamic, can I think of any, any others. I think that's it. Uh, and there's no difference in the support they provide. The religion is almost irrelevant. If you want that religious support, if that's something that you, you need uh, as part of your, uh, your faith, they're there to do that. But they're there also to provide that interpersonal leadership that, that we've talked about. And I think that quite often missing from the the textbooks from the discussions around around leadership around command around management this has been a really fascinating conversation for me because it's not something i'd ever really stopped to think about 
but well, being forced to think back to all of the interactions I've had with Bargrave and chaplains over my career, it, it's, it's really highlighted the, the value in, in exploring why, why they're able to talk to people, why they're able to be the interlocutor between different levels of a hierarchy so that they can unlock problems, so that they can be the translator of why, why there are stresses, why there are tensions. So they can be the sounding board for really difficult moral dilemmas. And they don't offer a judgment. They are a judgment-free sounding board to offer advice, to offer comfort, to provide pastoral care at every level. And I think perhaps one of the things we've concentrated on is bringing messages down from the hierarchy down to the, the, the lowest levels. But it goes the other way as well. And we've kind of alluded to in the past on this podcast, the need for recognizing the difficulty in being a senior senior leadership and I being in a senior leadership position. And I think we'll do a whole podcast episode on the loneliness of command. That's a recognized term in the military. And the loneliness of command is basically the the idea that you could be surrounded by people, but but if you're responsible for those people, who do you turn to? when you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling tired, when you don't know what to do. And, and I don't think that's recognised enough in the civilian world. So, Ian, we are eternally grateful for you coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. And, and we absolutely want to have you back to, to talk about your book. Thank you. Yeah, good good luck finishing the book. And, and I hope we've surprised a few people as well, because, as we've said, it's a topic that y- y- perhaps you don't immediately connect with leadership but I, I scribbled down the words that we'd used trust credibility cares about people genuine courage to re- address the problem self-awareness and openness to feedback flexible and adaptable given different situations a partner often without judgment skills with words sense of ownership and responsibility acts as a leader assumes rank takes responsibility thoughtful about being a good communicator leading from the front by example Honestly, we could have just taken this from chapter headings from books on leadership. So just as Gareth said, thank you very much, Ian. Good luck with the book. And we will be delighted if you'll let us to have you come back and carry on the conversation. Yeah, I'll come back anytime. Thank you both for allowing me to come about, come and talk about the two things that I'm quite passionate about, which is chaplains in World War II. And leadership is so important to me. Leadership in general life is important. But thank you very much for coming along. It's been a fascinating discussion. Well, it's a real pleasure. And thank you from us. And we'll see you next episode. Thanks very much. Cheerio.